the Land and Everything Else podcast. I am Ailey Elmore, and we are so excited for you to join us as we learn about investing from the fields of America's heartland to derivatives trading in New York. The Land and Everything Else podcast is brought to you by the College of Agricultural, Consumer, and Environmental Sciences and the Department of Agricultural and Consumer Economics at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. We are so excited to have you with us today and hope you learn more about alternative investments. Well, everyone, I'm very, very excited to welcome one of my personal mentors, very, very good friend. Um, and he was also my graduate advisor in grad school. He is the reason I do what I do. Um, Dr. Bruce Sherrick, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, great, to, great to visit with you. Yes. I know that you've already kind of introduced yourself as well with Craig, but can you just give a little bit of a background about who you sure. are and yeah. particularly your, your research area? Uh, so I'm a professor at the University of Illinois, and I get to have the privilege of running the TIA Center for Farmland Research. So I've had um, the most um, wonderful career at the University of Illinois. been there over 30 years now and involved with a lot of different aspects with FarmDoc, with crop insurance, uh, but all of it connects to agriculture and all of it centers around farmland. Mm -hmm. why, why agriculture? Why farmland? Oh, gosh, you know, again, a series of happy accidents. I grew up on a farm, a small farm, and was convinced that I wasn't going to go back to the farm because my parents' goal was for us to each make enough money we could pay for our own college. And we all did and uh, went to Ohio State and, you know, ran as far away from agriculture as I could for a while and then found out that that was the most fun thing to do and then uh, took a job as a temporary job at the University of Illinois. And then I guess everything's temporary depending on how you measure time, but I'm still there now <laughs> uh, thinking it was just going to be a short stint, but it's just turned into the uh, the greatest, most fortunate set of accidental decisions I ever made. Yes. It's really funny. Just a little bit of background. I met Bruce um, when I was a student in his class and I absolutely just was enamored by this man who could just talk so fast and by uh, with so many different things. And I remember I had a conversation with him. I had decided to be a teaching assistant for him my senior year. I had a conversation with him. I had already decided about where I was going post-grad. And he said, you're going to be back here in less than a year. Six months later, I was back in grad school. It's, it's pretty easy to find the students who have such a, a absolute desire to learn and a need to learn and a need to contribute. I don't think it's a real tough call in your case. Yeah. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Well, we are live in Des Moines. Uh, just for everybody knows, wherever there's about 12 inches of snow, it looks like, on the ground. <laughs> um, but we are live at the Land Investment Expo. And you've given a little bit of background about this event. And you were, you've actually been one of the keynote speakers at this event. I have. I've been to the last 10 or so, and I've uh, been, you know, what we call uh, center stage a few times. But it's mm -hmm. always, a, it's a great event. Um, it's become a who's who in farmland investing and people from all around the country and uh, to some degree around the world who have a financial stake in agriculture end up here. Yeah. And so before I get into questions, I would love for you to start by asking me the questions you asked the audience today. So I, it's, it's not just a gimmick to get to know your audience. It's a way to set up the point of the conversation mm -hmm. we're about to have. And so that is, do you own any farmland? Would you like to own more farmland? 
Do you think farmland is too expensive to buy? I do, yes. Will you sell me your farmland at that price? I will not. Right. And so there's <laughs> this this gap between the buy and sell and the uh, personalization of the asset class for somebody who is an active farmer. Mm -hmm. And that's understandable. Uh, but we've come through a period now where farmland in the Midwest is up 50, 60, some places more than that percent over the last two and a half, three years. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so we have to actually begin to ask, ask the questions in a more careful way about what does that mean, if anything, about where it's going. What should be the right response to, would you like to sell me your land? Would you like to buy more? Are markets sufficiently pricing land or not? How to make sense out of the inflation episode that we're experiencing? How to make sense out of the low interest rate episode we had? Mm -hmm. How to make sense out of the rapid increase in interest rates we did have? Mm -hmm. Why isn't there much farmland debt by an individual owner, but institutional owners have debt? All those things that used to simply be in the background because things are kind of moving along in a fairly stable way. Now we have to question them a little bit and mm -hmm. say what's going to happen in the future. Yeah. On top of that, just to ramble a little further, if I may. No, please. Um, we have to think about any asset as being some version of its discounted set of future expected yes. income. And the sources of income to agriculture have been materially changing. Mm -hmm. And the simple ones to identify are pre-COVID, agriculture got a lot of governmental support from things like market facilitation program payments or mm -hmm. payments for the trade war, yeah. or uh, COVID relief payments accrued to agriculture in a pretty mm -hmm. strong way, or when people stopped going to restaurants and started buying more from grocery stores, that actually added to food inflation in a preferential way that was beneficial to agriculture, and on and on. Mm -hmm. And government policies have continued to evolve to the point of being even more supportive of agriculture, not mm -hmm. just crop insurance, but also the other titles in the Farm Bill. And so all of these things on the income side look positive, except commodity prices have begun declining. Yes. And so that's the one big countervailing effect. In the next few years, we have small effects, but in the long run, we also have to ask what drives agricultural income. Mm -hmm. And part of what I uh, talk about is the long-term thesis that there'll be more people on the planet. I think that's true. Yes, And I, I think they're going to eat food. And this <laughs> is the, you know, a little bit of the quippy, sticky way of setting it up, but what what people eat depends on their income. Mm -hmm. And as people's standard of living goes up, you eat more proteins. And mm -hmm. so that's a big driver on income. The other two, of course, to talk about are inflation uh, and interest rates. So. Yes. Yeah, it was actually, you're setting me up greatly for my next question. So, um, you know, it's currently, we're, it's currently 2024. We're coming off of, you know, a period of very high inflation post COVID-19 pandemic. How has farmland performed the last three to four years post-COVID-19 during this high inflationary time? So the answer to that question could have been recorded back in 1971 and would have stayed the same till now. If we look at a three-year, five-year, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, or 40-year period, farmland's positive correlation with inflation is an unbroken record. Mm -hmm. There are only two periods where uh, the aggregate return to the think of a basket of farmland, was actually below inflation. And that was sort of the aberration of 2009 when markets kind of shut down. Yeah. We didn't know what to do. And it makes sense, though. Um, you should expect that real assets will grow in proportion to the thing they produce. And mm -hmm. the definition of inflation is the nominal change in a widely consumed good or service or commodity mm -hmm. and a widely consumed commodity, what could be more widely consumed than commodities and what does agriculture produce. And so to some degree that happened. But the other thing that is new, and it's the only time in my 30 plus year career now where this has happened, the inflation one is the same answer. Yeah. 
the the source of and form of inflation though is completely different this time. Mm-hmm. We printed money for not producing things, and we have to then monetize any excess of that print. And the way you monetize that has shown up in equity markets and real asset markets primarily, and some other things too. Mm-hmm. But it's perfectly predictable, not terribly astounding. The question is though, going forward, once we're through this episode, if we decide to get through this episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of a Fed policy question, among other things, then I don't know how the asset class will behave on the back end of that after we fully monetized inflation. And when we look kind of like regionally, where have you seen the most growth across, you know, the country? This is that's a fun question. That's not (laughs) just a great question. It's a fun question. Um, Again, almost sound like a, you know, historic retrospective here. But one of the first projects I got to do at U of I was help with the formation and set up the with of the NACREF index for yes. farmland. And it's now, um, you know, 30 some years started in 1991. And we have now more than 16 billion in the index and uh, 1300 or so properties. And it's a very reliable thing that we mm-hmm. can look at regionally, by crop type, by mm-hmm. management type, by underlying commodity. And so the Pacific Northwest has become kind of fascinating to me for its flexibility. The upper Great Plains, um, for their catch-up, uh, they've really become a production region in the last 15 years that's mm-hmm. more important than it historically was. Uh, California is really fascinating because in aggregate, there's some um, specific commodity problems. Almonds right now are still tough, apples, yeah. citrus. Um, so you kind of can peg some of it to the particular commodity grown in the region. Mm-hmm. But the Lake States and the Midwest and the Corn Belt have absolutely killed it. Yeah. In the last few years. And also on a long term basis, if you were to kind of pattern out the long term returns, those are the areas that have done better than the S&P 500, for example. And when we look at farmland markets, not only are we looking regionally, but we're looking by crop type. So Mm -hmm. annual cropland versus permanent cropland. Mm -hmm. And particularly with permanent cropland, there are a unique set of risks associated with it. And we've spent a lot of time talking about returns, moving kind of towards the risk profile. Mm -hmm. What are some of the things that are unique to permanent cropland when it comes to the risk profile? Well, gosh, in the Southeast, the easy one is to say hurricane hurricane can take down a 15-year-old tree and it takes you a long time to get another 15-year-old tree. So the fact that there's production risk that is longer standing and you can't replace it, you know, a derecho in the Midwest will take down that year's corn Mm -hmm. and that's it. Yeah. What happened? Mm -hmm. Nothing. (laughs) Didn't affect the production value of the the thing underlying it. Mm -hmm. But if you lose a pistachio grove because of water or oranges because of greening or a crop of, uh, you know, vines to phylloxera. There are things you can't do. So when more of the value of production is above ground, Mm -hmm. uh, the more risky it is, and hence why permanent crops generally would be expected to earn a little higher rate of return. Mm -hmm. Um, Specific crops, not necessarily. And apples, as an example, there's been some significant um, varietal obsolescence it seems like if the uh, apple variety doesn't end in crisp, it's hard to sell in the uh, grocery stores these days. Uh, but those kind of those kind of features work out like they do in any other financial market. Do you work with farming, ranching, or agribusiness clients? Do you want to help farm and ranch families ensure their business success into the next generation? Are you ready to build relationships that will last a lifetime? The Agriculture Focus Financial Planner designation at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign will help you develop the skills you need to better serve the farming, ranching, and agriculture community. 
This booming market relies on competent and skillful financial professionals to achieve its goals of farm families. The AFFP designation teaches you about crop insurance, legacy planning, social security for farmers, and other topics critical to serving these communities. Find out more information about the AFFP at affp.illinois.edu or search for Agriculture-Focused Financial Planner on your favorite browser. Yeah. Well, I mean, even when we look at citrus, the, the issue of citrus, citrus greening and disease pressure in that space, like it wipes out your crop uh, for that Fresh year. market Florida. Yeah. And yeah. multiple years after that. Yeah. Um, so we've kind of already touched on the three, you know, we've talked about your three eyes that yeah. drive farmland values and farmland markets. So we've already talked about income, inflation. Let's move to that third one, interest rates. Yes. Talk. Give me a little perspective about the debt profile of United States agriculture. Well, it's almost um, embarrassingly low mm -hmm. if you were to compare it to industrial production in any other sector. So on the long-term uh, side of the agricultural balance sheet, which is now $4 trillion, mm -hmm. about 13.5% debt. And that's really, really shockingly low, but it's explainable. If you look through the asset class and why it has such low debt, it makes sense to the individual operator. It wouldn't make sense to an institutional buyer, perhaps, to have that low of a debt load, but there's still not a lot of institutionally owned land. Um, but it's it's been a little bit immune to the increase in interest rates because there wasn't much borrowing to begin with. And if you already had a long-term fixed rate loan and interest rates otherwise went up, you're probably feeling pretty good about yeah. that. You might feel locked in, but the present value of your debt payments actually improve for you in that case. Yeah. yeah. No. No, that makes sense. And kind of touching on that space, you know, looking to 2024, um, what are what are your, some of your expectations around interest rates and maybe subsequently farmland values? Uh, so I, I love the quote that was, I think, in maybe the Wall Street Journal that said something like, there are two kinds of economists, those who don't know what's going to happen to interest rates and those who don't know that they don't know what's going to happen to interest rates. So I think there are still enough uh, pieces of uncertainty that we can't really accurately yeah. predict. The Fed's signaling has been notoriously useless in terms of actual outcomes because of the other market factors that actually intervene. The dot plots don't seem to signal all that much and expectations yeah. are partly used now to signal. Mm -hmm. um, so if interest rates come down rather than I expect them to, I think, and they have started moderating. Yeah. I think you get the normal reactions from markets, you borrow more and so on. But what I do think will happen, whether we come down or not as quickly or not, I think interest rates will normalize. We'll get an upward sloping yield curve again. The mm -hmm. forces behind that are just too great to ignore for much longer. Yeah. I think the uh, position of community banks and others with uh, capital to lend, you know, we kind of burned through a lot of the cash, the excess cash mm -hmm. in banks. Um, that's coming back or can come back or you'll have more rational um, deposit and debt markets. So I think access to capital will not be a problem. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like to leave that part there. I think the um, the impact of higher interest rate that means future income is worth less. And the expectation for future income being higher or lower have a natural hedge going on anyhow, though. In the same way that people will say, well, commodity prices are really high. You must have made a lot of money. Well, commodity prices are really high because yields were really low. The product of those 
tends to even out more than either side of that equation. Mm -hmm. And so it is with the effect of cap rates on asset values. Yeah. And kind of going to that income piece, you know, uh, we heard from David Muth today from People's Company, really awesome presentation in the renewables mm -hmm. um, front. Um, any thoughts from you about when you see the drivers for farmland values, do you see the renewable space really being a driver of, you know, returns? Uh, so historically, the impact of ethanol on farmland returns has been pretty positive. Yeah. And I think there's some expectation that other forms of sustainable aviation, fuel, renewable diesel, and so on, will help add that same additional demand to the oil seed side of the uh, major grain production regions. Mm -hmm. But it's a more complicated thing now. Uh, Dave also talked about carbon sequestration and the um, amount of spend we're putting in the economy to green the energy complex. Yeah. Uh, we don't have super well-developed mechanisms for that yet, though. So it's it's all out there, but it's on the horizon. Yeah. And what we think we see is a little hard to put into focus yet. Mm -hmm. um, there are increasing pressures to have simple practice payments. Mm -hmm. um, so a, a commodity or a consumer packaged goods company that needs to say sustainably sourced fill in the blank. <laughs> Uh, might be more willing to pay for farmer practices. They'll, yeah. they'll pay your family to do cover crops or go to mm -hmm. no-till or to do something that they can say was an offset to some other effect. Yeah. As we get to more um, literally measured elements rather than practice payments, it will be a little harder to see how those markets sort out. Mm -hmm. They're not there yet. Yeah. No, especially when we look at the carbon markets, you know, Dave was talking about it's paying, you know, $15, 15 to $20 per ton and doesn't quite match how much it costs the farmer to right. actually incorporate those practices. The other interesting thing from his presentation that he showed was the map of the amount of space it would take to convert to get to that net zero right. of how much land it would take in solar panels and wind turbines right. and all these other renewable um renewable sources, and it was a significant amount of farmland. Do you think at some point there is going to be this debate of clean energy versus actual producing enough food for our growing population? I think markets will sort that out pretty well. Yeah. And I think the, the impressive thing about that way of presenting the facts-based version of this is to say individual companies all want to claim they're going to get to some net zero or some sustainability point or, and push it off into the future so straight lining it feels sensible for a few years. Mm -hmm. Without considering the scale, you might think that's all achievable. But we've never done any production of anything that's net zero, right? <laughs> that's not the history. Yeah. And so maybe net zero isn't the right target or maybe to get mm -hmm. there wouldn't be feasible. But mm -hmm. people are not very good at, at math with lots of commas is the joke, right? Yeah. So so when you need a trillion of something or a billion of something or a million of something, those are really mm -hmm. different things. And it's easy to promise until you do the math and then go, oh, but uh, then we wouldn't have any food. Or, yeah. And so I think markets will be – when we get these priced, when mm -hmm. you start saying – to put up another million acres of solar panels, it does what to our cost of mm -hmm. pork? Then you start having real yeah. debates. Yeah. Early stage, though, we tend to use um, subsidies or experiments or other things to try to encourage a change in behavior and then find out how markets may or may not take over. Yeah. And people love that word, sustainability. They do. And it's, be, it's become such a 
buzzword even on food labeling yeah. it's just like sustainable sustainable and i really like drew bledsoe's point today um, when he was speaking about how he runs his winery and his definition of sustainability yeah. and yes it is kind of our our traditional thought of adopting cover crops or more sustainable farming practices but it's also creating a sustainable business and a right. sustainable future in food and for the people actually working for him I, I love that conversation as well and mm -hmm. sort of sustainability. Uh, one of the companies that I, I get a chance to deal with has a great mission statement, which is something like transforming the world to sustainable future through markets. Yeah. So recognizing that to do so still has to make sense. You still have to survive. You have to make enough money for that to work and turning it into the things where you make more money because mm -hmm. or you're more able to work in the future because I think is a good way of thinking about sustainability. Yeah. Okay, last question. Are you long-term bullish on farmland markets? I am, okay. I actually am. So I think the short-term is hard to predict. I think the long-term is not that hard to predict. Yeah. I think a lot of it is priced in already, mm -hmm. but I don't see anything that reduces the safety net programs for agriculture in the US. I don't see anything that changes the long-term population dynamics. I don't see anything that changes the long-term standard of living. And the most uh, fixed relationship in history is that if you give someone hungry more money, they eat more food. Mm -hmm. If you give someone more money who eats enough food, they improve the quality of their diet. Yeah. And as you give more discretionary income to people, they continue to spend more and more on higher quality diets. And I think that in the long term is important. At the same time, we're devoting a much larger share of, of terrestrial agriculture to energy production. Mm -hmm. If you put those two things together, it's hard to find the the case where that doesn't work out. Yeah, I would agree. You know, as a farmer myself and somebody in this industry, I would, I'm always bullish. But So I'll go back to my first questions. <laughs> so if land is too expensive, why won't you sell me your land? Yeah. And this well, what asset would you rather own question? Oh, yeah. gosh, nothing else. Right. And that it's kind of unique not to kind of keep going. But the unique thing about American farmland is there is that passionate tie of owning property and owning prop you know it's been so closely held for mm -hmm. so many generations that there is kind of that emotional element to it as well that's hard to quantify indeed but yeah. okay well bruce thank you so much for thank your you. time today we really really appreciate it and um if people are looking for more information about your work where would you direct them towards i'd start at farm doc and you mm -hmm. can find all of us at the university of illinois on farm doc and then sort through by topic and you'll find naturally the the right person and if it's land values or crop insurance or capital models or insurance generally it'll probably lead to me if it's budgets it may lead to gary if it's policy <laughs> yes. it may lead to jonathan if it's commodities to scott mm -hmm. so I would say that's how you can find us more generally because it's a great team and and it's it's I think a really unique team and we're really proud of it and hope that you will find us and contact us. Great. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you. your time. Thanks for listening to the Land and Everything Else podcast. For more information on alternative investing, find us on your favorite social media platform using the links in the show notes. Thank you to the production team behind this podcast, Pod Pony. If you're ready to up your podcast game, visit podpony.com to saddle up today and learn more. I'm Ailey Elmore, and this is the Land and Everything Else podcast. We'll catch you on the next episode.